0: Warning, Mr. Cole and Mr. Rasner are not historians, journalists, or socialists. In the course of this episode, they will use profanity, consume alcohol, make inaccurate claims, and discuss violent and disturbing acts. Fact-checking and listener discretion is advised. 84 ounces of freedom everyone i am mr cole and i am the sultan
1: of zanzibar and we talk trucks nothing but trucks only trucks
0: today we have some heavy metal beers i was down in the city a few weeks ago i apologize for not being bi-weekly dave and i both knew we had stuff going on and we're gonna miss a few weeks there we did have the beer competition That went very well. We won with the IPA that we made with the homebrew club, which I think Paul's was actually better. I think he had a little better hop profile on his. Honestly, mine was like a blunt hop punch in the face. And what else? The Cookie Monster Stout won for best dark beer, and the Hard Kool-Aid won for the best other. So it was a very good event. We had a great time. Uh, thanks to everybody that showed up.
1: We had a really good spot this year. It was like not near the stage. It was really, really pleasant. The weather was nice. It wasn't too hot. It was, it was hot, but it wasn't,
0: it wasn't death hot. We have heavy metal beers on this uh, episode. This is comes from Unique Brew, our boy Dave Mustaine. This is a mega death beer, a Toot Le Monde. Uh, I mean, is it a Belgian I'm not sure. I dropped one of these, so that's the one I dropped.
1: Looks like it's not too bad though. Yeah. Yeah, let's get this poured. I haven't had a beer in a week. I'm like dying.
0: Really? Back on the keto? Well, I was
1: thinking about it, but we're going on vacation this weekend, so it's not oh, gonna work. It's ruined. Dang.
0: It yeah, Belgian
1: nice. style size on. Oh, This is gonna be on. good.
0: This is good for, for This for, is what you want first. So yeah. as people know Dave Mustaine is the singer and guitar player from Megadeth, originally with Metallica on the first *Kill 'Em All album, which um, he was fired before the completion of the album, uh, which they actually wanted to call Metal Up Your Ass, but the record company wouldn't let him do it. And uh, Dave went on to create Megadeth, which uh, everyone thought was kind of a joke at the time, but uh, however many platinum albums later... Megadeth is a real deal. This is one of my favorite bands.
1: That beer's good. It's definitely a saison.
0: Yeah, that's nice. Classic, I mean. bright. It says on the cheerful. Bo- of course, it's got his mascot Vic with a, the skull with a ton of metal and stuff on the cover. Oh yeah, Belgian style saison ale. Ale brewed with spice. Bottle re-fermented. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of solids in there. Four and a half alcohol. So, um, this is a nice beer. Drinkable. Um, I got this at a place called Oliver's in Santa Rosa. And uh, individual bottles were like on sale for $1.25. So, I'm like, oh, I've been looking for this. This
1: is bottle re fermented.
0: Yeah, but I don't see any, any solids in the bottom.
1: Maybe a tiny bit. It's cloudy, so it's tough to say.
0: I'll take off, eh? It's brewed in Canada unique brow unibrow
1: and then it has the little fleur-de-lis at the top i guess that's a belgian thing so i read about size-ons once and i believe the tradition for a size-on was they were brewed at farms and they were brewed for the farm labor dudes that were working the farm
0: oh that'll get me to work in the yard
1: yeah no it was it was um something like the arrangement was you worked and you were compensated in some way but as part of your compensation for a day's work you were provided at the end of the day with a meal and all the size on homebrew for that every farm had like their own recipe they were proud of it it was um tradition and passed down and um so these were farmhouse ales used as part of the compensation
0: for farm labor. The only Saison I've made uh my brother in law absolutely loved and it used uh saw's hops S A A Z I think they were. Yeah. And I thought that was what kind of contributed to a saison but maybe it's the yeast. I'm I don't really know. I don't know either. I have some stuff to learn there apparently.
1: It's good though. I can get <clears throat> this. This is nice. Be nice on a hot day. Um Fourth of July is coming up. We barbecued last year. Are we doing that?
0: Yeah. I as f- I have the day off. Um As do I. I'm gonna try to get there at like six in the morning and get our spot and barbecue all day, drink beer. Um I'm gonna try to make sure we have more beer than last time because somehow our neighbors were mistaking our ice chest for theirs. We did. We got <laughs> we got
1: they straight devo beers from us. Did um are you taking the Weber down? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um cool so this this would be a nice beer to be sipping in the afternoon on the 4th of july it's a four and a half percent yeah you drink it all day and it's got a nice flavor for a hot sunny day it's supposed to be about 90
0: and it's metal it is metal pure metal
1: last 4th of july i met your son for the first time oh yeah shane and um do you think he'll make it out this year
0: i don't know i gotta i gotta make sure and let him know what we're actually doing since that was our first annual fourth of july party it was fun had a good time me too
1: just gets better every year with leo like he'll he'll get a huge kick out of the fireworks he won't remember last year but he he had pretty big eyeballs when those were all going off around him
0: i barely remember last year (laughs) for different reasons so this this is something we do have to dive into here um you're gonna be amazed by this okay so we had some correspondence recently um in past episodes um we talked about deborah blum's book uh the poisoner's handbook and uh so i reached out to her and as i've learned sent her the link with it and said hey we mentioned your book in this and uh put the link and uh she responded uh she said listening now thank you so much best d you know and i'll i you know if if my name was three syllables i would shorten it to one
1: (laughs) that's what you want
0: yeah i I mean clint boom you're done it's actually clinton but no one calls me that (laughs) it's my middle name anyways no one calls me william i didn't you're my best friend i didn't even know your name was william that is awesome <laughs> yeah dude if, i mean my full name is william clinton cole the second i'm named after my grandfather I gotcha. <clears throat> but if i took a nickname for my first name and kept the middle lit name <laughs> you could call me bill clinton <laughs> but don't the other correspondence that we had that what was really amazing to me um Dane Ladwig, uh, his book uh Doctor H. H. Holmes and the White Chapel Ripper that we talked to talked about in one of the past episodes when we were kinda he was interviewed on Sword and Scale along with uh Jeff Mudgett, I believe. Um I sent him the link to the episode and, and said uh what I asked him, what do you think about uh the belief that Aaron Kaminsky is uh the ripper due to the recent DNA testing and stuff Mm. and he really he he said well do you want me to call or do you want a written answer I said for us right now because we're technologically challenged and we're going in a hundred different directions I mean it's it's been four weeks since we could do an episode and there's just a lot going on I I couldn't nail down a time to get him on the phone but Mm -hmm. I said hey if if you want to write that would be cool and he did so here is um, his response. Thank you for your patience awaiting my response um, on regarding Aaron Kosminski. I think that's the right way to say it. Okay. <clears throat> Polish-born and raised Russian defector of the then Russian-ruled Poland, Aaron Kosminski, has once again become the armchair ripperologist topic of discussion as a shawl has come into question that is a recurring theme in the ongoing Ripper identity saga. Here is what we can gather from the facts. Russell Edwards, a businessman from the UK, is said to have purchased a shawl that was found near Catherine Kate E. Dow's deceased body after her encounter with Jack the Ripper. Uh, victim number four of the cano- can- canonical... Five, referred to as the double event. Edows was murdered 45 minutes after Elizabeth Stride. The DNA is extracted from the shawl, here's the smoke. Key details of the DNA. Specific genetic variants were not published or provided. Where there's smoke, there's fire. The strand signature lifted from the DA is T1A1 what does that mean? T1A1 is a common DNA strand and in London in 1888 in a population exceeding 195,000 people. Hundreds shared this common strand of DNA and tens of thousands carry the strand today. That does not qualify them as being or being related to Jack the Ripper. What is this common DNA stand? Strand, excuse me. This is a DNA strand that ancestry.com uses in building case files to inform its subscribers what region of the world they may have come from <laughs> coincidentally ancestry.com has many pending court cases for misleading its subscribers as to their assumed origin a quick search on the net can confirm this if you're interested the other type of dna that is 100 percent undeniable is nuclear DNA. Nuclear DNA can tell about your entire physical makeup to the very infinitesimal detail. Nuclear DNA is accurate, precise, and beyond all, it is trustworthy. Why was a nuclear DNA test not done to confirm the exacting results on the shawl and the alleged surviving relative? Good question. More evidence. The one source used to verify the shawl's authenticity and DNA evidence was allegedly a distant relative of Kosminsky's sister's side of the family who elected to remain anonymous, thus an unverifiable source. So, what of the shawl? The shawl is said to be made of a fine Russian fabric, not a custom as a fabric that would be owned or even sold in London. Aaron Kosminski was a defector of a Russia-ruled Poland and would have had access to such garments, but there is a considerable problem. I researched the Metropolitan Police files and the inspe- inspector reports, the autopsy reports, crime scene photos, and victim photos, which I have access to from the research materials in my book, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes and the Whitechapel Ripper, and there is no shawl mentioned or resembling the one Mr. Edwards has in his possession located on or near Kate E. Dell's body. Furthermore, Ripper experts and investigators concluded that with the precision the cuts were made on the victim, it would have taken medical knowledge and skill with certain surgical tools. Kaminsky did not possess the skills... Possessed a skillful hand as his profession was as a town barber. As we know, he was a barber. He spoke little broken English and had a difficult time communicating. The eyewitness reports of possible Ripper sightings at the crime scenes, according to case files, evidence has a finely dressed gentleman seen with the victims. This is undoubtedly not how Kosminski would dress nor could he afford fine garments on the meager salary of a barber. In reflection, the DNA evidence is shoddy to say the least. The shawl, even if it were DNA strand T1A1 linked to the crime scene, it is stated by Edwards himself and others it was found near her, not on her person nor any mention of how close to her body the alleged shawl was. That does not make it Catherine Edel's shawl. If the shawl was linked to the crime scene, could K- Kosminski have been to the site and dropped the shawl he intended as a gift to someone else? The possibility as to the shawl's origin are endless. Sure. Mr. Russell Edwards has successfully manipulated a society ambitious to become the big revealer of one of the most high-profile and elusive unsolved murder cases in history. He is a businessman, and this is a brilliant marketing tool. You can verify my statements through the following sources. And he... um,
1: Hyperlinks everything.
0: He gives me four links that I'll post on uh, the Facebook and (laughs) our other sites. So uh, if you want to see more of where uh, Mr. Ladwig uh, gets his information, you can see it there. And, uh, you know, I thank him profusely for answering us. That's great that he would take the time to... case is still unsolved. Yeah, I mean as far <laughs> as far as he's concerned and and uh he's got some pretty strong evidence against what uh you know, your average clickbait uh internet posting of hey, you know, Jack the Ripper is solved, it's this barber. Yep. So it makes you still have to wonder. For sure. But uh thanks again. Unless man. the unless the barber
1: is on Fleet Street and then you know it's him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he, um, my phone, uh, of course, how it has to correct everything. When I said, responded to him as Mr. Ladwig, it changed it to Mr. Ludwig.
1: He probably gets that all the time. I
0: said, I I had to apologize for my phone thinking it's smarter than me. (laughs) Metallica beer. This is a stone. Stone, enter night, made in honor of the Metallica. Oh
1: my gosh, look at that. How cool. In collaboration with Metallica, this is uh, this is cool. This is a nice find. Where'd you where'd you
0: get this? This I got at the Bevmo. Uh, before I jump into our other major topics, I have some an update and kind of some light, almost political topic. Um, you probably know about this. Uh, YouTube recently cracked down on white supremacist content and conspiracy theories to stop hate speech. They will block thousands of channels that are in violation. Last year, Alex Jones was kicked off for calling Sandy Hook a hoax. I understand how hurtful this would be to surviving family members of the children killed there, and Alex Jones' claim is ridiculous, but we don't have to watch it. You know what I mean? It's... I'm a big proponent for freedom of speech and I understand, you know, YouTube is a privately owned company and they can do what they want, but you know, I I I'll, I'll even I think I even wrote more about this. You know, I don't watch white supremacist channels and if I view one by mistake, I turn it off. Didn't you have someone that you were watching for years and they've turned out to be a white nationalist? I and did. You, I I was the, I, you,
1: you, I was I've never been that's well, I've been that surprised before, but it's been a while. So I I am a wannabe welder fabricator. I've never actually done it and I intend to someday. But it's tough when you have young kids. So I've spent many hours of my wasted life watching a YouTube channel by a young man whose YouTube personality is Chucky Two thousand nine. I don't know his real name. But if you are into welding and are on YouTube, you know who he is. He's he's um well-published and making a handsome living on YouTube, and um, his videos have always been welding, fabricating, and tractors and farm stuff lately, and that's kind of right in my wheelhouse, and um, every now and then he'd let a little something slip that you'd say, oh, you know, he's he's conservative or you know, he's a Christian and you know, things that aren't offensive to me, but you know, you can kind of see where he's coming from, and Then all of a sudden he cut a video and I watched it that I I was absolutely floored. You know, you kind of think you know somebody when you watched them make video logs for a hundred hours. And he essentially described himself, he didn't say white nationalist, he described himself as an ethno-nationalist but if you're white and you're describing yourself as an ethno-nationalist then you're describing yourself as a white nationalist and um, he he um, gosh what else did he say I don't know at the end of the day when he decided to turn political he took it so far that even if he never mentioned any of that in a video again like I just don't feel comfortable even being a subscriber to his channel because I don't want to associate with someone who is a white nationalist.
0: And that's the right thing. That's what I think. I don't think these people should be kicked off. I think you should still have a choice and your choice is to not watch it, but you should I think you should get that choice. Yeah. I mean, look at my YouTube channel. The most political I get on it is you might see me wearing a Gary Johnson shirt, <clears throat> but It's about making beer and it's about music and kind of leave my politics out of it that's kind of what this is for you know this is a a different outlet Um, what else did I say here I think it should be up to the viewers if they want to watch it or not if uh, some white supremacist channel has over 10 million views I mean what does that say about our society but on the other hand if a white supremacist channel has 10 views who cares you know what I mean? Uh, YouTube is a privately held company and they are allowed to make whatever rules they want for their platform. But as a libertarian, I might not agree with what you have to say, but I will stand up for your right to say it.
1: Yeah, you and I are like the last two Volterra libertarians that I, I like personally know.
0: I, uh, do I know one? Maybe my civics teacher from high school. Yeah,
1: that's right. Like all my teachers in school were classical liberals, Voltaire kind of people. Um I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, I don't. It's it, maybe not. It's uh, the the free speech, speech absolutist thing is is I would say that was lost. It's it's not a thing anymore. Um
0: Man, this beer is good. Have you tried the? So yeah, I have tried the Metallica beer. I'm just not quite through this first one yet to get into it. So.
1: And I'm kind of into pilsners right
0: now, so this. But is it's fun. like a pilsner IPA, don't you think? It like no, the that's... hop presence is like I could smell the hops when I opened it. I don't know, man. I'm getting straight
1: pilsner. It it, it reminds me, um, uh, what are some of the pilsners we drink like Trumer. It's almost like got a Trumer kind of taste to it. What?
0: All right, I gotta get this in my glass.
1: Yeah, you were you were going into detail reading that correspondence. You
0: got a little behind. Well, I was when I when I heard about this beer, I'm like, oh, a Pilsner for Metallica? I don't, I don't know if that's right. It should be some brutal IPA or something, you know.
1: But that's what everyone else is doing. So I feel like you, you go another direction.
0: Well, I have the ultimate plan. For my Metallica beer, or heavy metal beer, or whatever. Oh, dude, dude! If I make it a black. Stout, I can call it black metal. (laughs) So this is what you do. You you are you familiar with uh, silver water? No. Or think they call it colloidal silver water? Colloidal. Colloidal silver water. I am familiar. Okay, so basically all you do is take water and you put a positive and a negative electrode in it that's connected to a piece of silver in that water, and you Mm -hmm. can use silver coins even working this. And hook each side up to a battery and it'll start to foam mm-hmm. like it's carbonated. What it's doing is putting the silver into suspension in the liquid. It's it's the rever- it's the alchemy. <laughs> so th- there's a lot of people be- that believe that's how Nostradamus survived through the Black Plague. Because he was drinking that water. So my metal beer is to use silver water to make it
1: Like some people maybe wouldn't like that. So you just have to be really really open like no, you're,
0: have you drank silver water you know what it's like you've licked a nine volt battery right yeah that's what it's like <laughs> in a drink
1: um but I think some people would be against that, so you just have to make sure we'd have to make everyone it knew it's kind of like your pot beer just everybody has to be aware major disclaimer major
0: disclaimer yeah. I do have an update on um Hiro Onoda, who we talked about, I think, in our first, maybe second episode. Uh, he was um, the Japanese soldier yes. on the island of Luban. Uh, <coughs> Hiro Onoda remained concealed in the forest for 30 years because he was uh, convinced that World War II was not over. They have recently added a new tourist attraction on the island of Lubon.
1: This cave or something exactly
0: <laughs> there's now the onada trail which is an eight kilometer walk that arrives at four caves that onada and his team lived in over the 30-year period hikers must coordinate with the local tourism office to take the trail come on yeah some of the younger people of on Lubon are quoted as saying how he was able to survive in the wild and live off natural organic resources. No, he was like stealing. Oh, no, dude. They, they, they also cite the fact that because of him, they can preserve the mountains and forests now. Give
1: me a fucking break.
0: Yeah, so like the older people on the island um, have a little different view. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the time of Onada's terrorism, uh, Onada and his team were known to burn rice fields and steal cows from residents. Uh, they also shot many residents and killed some of them. Those memories and scars don't go away so easily. <laughs> but the younger generation is like, yeah, he lived organically, man, and we can preserve the mountains. Dude, he shot and killed like 30 people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he's putting up H.H. H. Holmes numbers.
0: They're like, dude, the war's over. Oh, shit, he shot me. <laughs> Jesus. how That had to go on for 30 years? Come on.
1: So, speaking of crazy things that happened in Asia, I read... A news story yesterday and i i was flabbergasted it was in the siberian times and and i found this uh article i i don't actually read the siberian times i know we're all going to be surprised to hear this i'm i'm shocked <laughs> because i mean we all read the siberian times right but i i found this on an aggregate site and <clears throat> as an as a nurse who gets people brought into emergency that are a train wreck and like tries my best with them. I I always think about this like, what if you know, what if you were the nurse that had to receive this guy? But the story is that uh some hunters were out in the woods in Siberia and they came across a bear den and look and the bear maybe probably wasn't in there or they were hunting the bear. I don't know those details. But they they went in the bear den and saw a dead guy laying there that was, they just said, oh, this guy's, like, mummified from being, like, in Siberia, you know, over the winter or something. And upon closer inspection, he was alive. Jesus Christ. And... Clint so Clint's looking at the pictures right now.
0: That guy's alive too. That guy's alive. Unbelievable.
1: And had laid and so the bear had mauled him and broken his spine, causing him to be paralyzed from probably the chest down. I I the story does state that he has use of his arms at least a little bit. But um, he was obviously injured very badly. You can see his wow. face is deformed from being mauled. The pictures are like not like friendly for children. really, really uncomfortable but um the bear took him back to the its den, which was a cave, and then he laid there for he'd been go- missing for over a month um getting whatever little bits of moisture to survive he could. He had no calories. he appears like a concentration camp victim, in addition to his skin being in horrible condition and, um, and various wounds in various states of healing from initially being mauled. Um, they said that he was oriented to self-only and he could only say his first name. Wow. Um, it's, it's really, really um, a sad story because this guy uh like i can tell you that he's in kidney failure and that's why he's confused or forgetful and if they dialyze him he might he might actually come back and be able to talk again and have his brain back but um really really a sad story and horrific story and he did live but i would say that it's very likely that he'll never be a functional human being again um and then like what strikes you like like look at this picture like look at his blue eyes like that's the thing right away that tells you that he's not dead like look at he's got like the nicest blue eyes you've ever seen oh
0: yeah it's like a human
1: skeleton with rotting face and then these like beautiful blue eyes that's amazing crazy so we've talked in the past that crazy shit happens in russia and that holds true for this particular story like crazy shit happens in russia
0: What about Japan? Help me. Wait till you hear this. Alright, so... <clears throat> I was surprised to find that Asian Madness podcast I really like uh, doesn't have an episode for this. But there there is another... Um, podcast out there uh true crime japan which um I'll, I'll tell you on the end here what episode if you want to hear uh, more information about this <clears throat> we have to give an additional warning on this one um if uh infant murder bothers you this may not be for you uh this section is entitled demon midwife oh cow This uh, is a story of Mayuki Ishikawa, who worked in the Kotobuki Maternity Hospital in Japan, and she was an experienced midwife. I'm going to send you to the podcast where they pronounce this stuff correctly. I promise you I'm not. Uh, In the 1940s, there was a deluge of babies being born. Many of the parents were poor and were unable to raise their children without great financial difficulty. Mayuki found that she was unable to help due to the lack of social and charitable services available at the time. To solve the problem, she would keep the babies and subject them to neglect, which resulted in death. Almost all other midwives were disgusted by this practice and resigned, but strangely none of them went to the police. I believe that these midwives are guilty of a crime due to their silence. As with any crime, Mayuki found a way to profit from this venture. She and her husband charged large large amounts of money to take care of their children. They argued that it would be less expensive than raising an unwanted child. Dr. Shiro Nakayama helped them by falsifying death certificates. Two police officers actually discovered the remains of five victims on January 12, 1948. Autopsies showed that they did not die of natural causes. Mayuki and her husband were arrested three days later. As they investigated, over 40 bodies were found with the mortician and 30 more were found later at a temple. The exact number of deaths is unknown because of the length of the time that this went on. The fact that the babies were and the fact that the babies were cremated. The official estimate is 103. She claimed that the parents were responsible as their babies <clears throat> were abandoned by them. But you could say that, but she said she was taking care of them. That's her murdering them, in my opinion. So
1: this is her delivering a baby and then yeah, uh, so just like, saying, oh, if you don't want this baby, I'll just take care of it, and then killing it? Yeah,
0: they just put it in a room and just leave it till it dies. No diaper changes. Right. No. So a lot of them died of pneumonia and other, like, <clears throat> starvation Um, The doctor got four years, and Mayuki and her husband were also sentenced to four years. Infants at that time in Japan were viewed more as property than a human. Japanese tradition disputes the rights of infants. Cases of infanticide by a parent were usually considered to be bodily injury injury resulting in death under the Criminal Code of Japan until 1907. So, I mean, it was after that, but it still was... Like, I believe at the time abortion was very illegal, but she found a way through it. Uh, and for better pronunciation, listen to True Crime Japan, episode four. Uh, there's up to 20 episodes. Look like they kind of stopped. They only did through 2017 no
1: no it's okay because at the end of world war ii when we had conquered japan we signed a treaty right Yeah. now in that treaty in the fine print there's a footnote and if you follow that footnote what it says is we don't have to correctly pronounce
0: their words (laughs) 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 yeah and uh, that podcast is really cool um it's two people who actually live in japan and uh a guy and a girl and the guy has very very clean very well pronounced english and the, the woman has a real heavy Japanese accent but her pronunciation of everything you can tell is authentic and correct but I saw it in like the comments even people were like saying you know if you're gonna be Japanese at least pronounce things correctly I'm like oh my god there really yeah oh my goodness I'm like it's, it sound perfect but who am I how do I know
1: so this is like a
0: Kermit Gosman so, style case. Yeah, theory. yeah, yeah I mean, crazy. This is,
1: this is not unique to Japan. This is a problem here too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I got. Um, what do I got left? I guess I just got uh, a couple of historical things. Well, so can I tell a story? Yeah, please. So,
1: uh, um, this I'm going to change. The names to protect the innocent because this is a true story and it involves um, a lady that I've worked with for many years and who I love. Um, So as a nurse, I have gotten acquainted with several friends. Well, I've become friends with several nurses from the Philippines because there are a lot of Filipino nurses. And um, one of them is a lady who um, told me a story. I didn't know her very well, um, but she told me the story, and it sort of warmed my heart. So he, uh, her, her uh, I'm not going to say her name. At any rate, she she's a lady who is um, probably in her 50s, Um, sometimes Filipino ladies look younger than they really are. I'd say that's probably true. Um, and she and her husband were back in Manila visiting family many years ago. And Manila is a huge city. I believe the population is similar to New York City. It's in the 25 million range. I mean, San Francisco style big maybe even bigger than that um and some parts of it are modern and wealthy and then other parts are very poor and very destitute and she was in one of those neighborhoods in manila and a young mother came up and handed her an infant and said take this baby or it's gonna die we don't have enough to feed this baby and and when you were describing the story in Japan about how some Mom. families didn't have enough to care for a baby, that's what reminded me of this story. And so this little girl had only had um, the water that was left after they boiled rice and been bottle-fed with that for weeks and weeks. It's the only nutrient she had had. And rice probably leaves some starch in the water. So, um, the child had had some calories, but no appreciable nutrients or micronutrients or anything like that um and was in a poor state and and my friend was a nurse then, and could see the the problem already, and she actually did end up taking this baby and adopting her wow and so um that takes time and effort to adopt a little baby from the Philippines and bring that child to the United States and make that child into a US citizen and all that but so her the, the way she told me the story is her husband actually stayed behind in Manila. She came back here and went back to work. I believe he stayed there for over a month is what it took to actually like get this child get parent guardianship over this child and they eventually brought this child back to the Bay Area and adopted her, raised her as their daughter, and now she's like twenty five in college wow. or something. And um I uh there have been times when I was frustrated with this coworker of mine but how do you stay mad at somebody who did something like that? Yeah, that's yeah.
0: A, that's an angel move. There. That's uh,
1: yeah, yeah. She she gets a uh, she gets a pass to the good place. You know, that's <laughs> crazy. Makes me smile just to tell that story.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so, have you ever heard of Victory Verticals? I've not. So this is a World War Two thing. Uh, in World War Two, Steinway and Sons produced specially built pianos for the american troops called the victory vertical or gi steinways the pianos were sometimes airdropped onto battlefields to provide a bit of relaxation (laughs) i've never this is crazy story i've never heard of it they were manufactured in steinway steinway's queen-based factory and mostly sold to the u.s government at first Steinway was prohibited from building pianos due to government restrictions on iron, copper, brass, and other raw materials. The factory bidded its time producing coffins and parts for the troop transport gliders until it was granted a contract to spend, send specifically designed pianos to commissioned war soldiers. Steinway proceeded to make over 3,000 victory vertical pianos designed specifically for troops in battle between 1941 and 1953
1: i'm picturing like rosie the riveter like assembling these yeah
0: the uh, pianos came in olive blue and gray drab in 19 (laughs) blue for the
1: navy obviously oh
0: yeah can you believe that though uh in 1941 the first victory vertical was dropped by parachute complete with tuning equipment and instructions For American troops in a faraway country during World War II, music was an excellent way to give them a peace of mind and remember why they were fighting. One soldier wrote home to his family, Two nights past we received welcome entertainment when a jeep pulling a small wagon came to camp. The wagon contained a light system and a Steinway piano. It is smaller and painted olive green, just like the jeep. We all got a kick out of it, And sure had fun after meals when we gathered around the piano to sing. I slept smiling and even today am humming a few of the songs we sang. The piano provided an excellent camaraderie and created a strong appreciation on the battlefield for not only music, but the Steinway name. And apparently you can still buy them. You can still track them down. I was going to
1: say, those have got to be collectible.
0: You know Glenn Beck's got one of these. (laughs) He has to. (laughs) <laughs> he's gotta be all over that.
1: <laughs> yeah, some of the stories from that that era are fun. You know, I we've got to get so so I'm the Sultan of Zanzibar, obviously. And my wife Laura is a good woman and um her grandfather is a World War Two vet and he's still alive and he's friggin' old but he's great. Um he turned ninety three about a week I think last weekend. And he's still sharp as attack. He you can't see in here too well, but um he he's he's a blast to talk with for a ninety-three year old. And he's got great stories because he's friggin' old. So he worked on the canal in California. So if you've ever driven down the five from Northern California to Southern California, that kind of goes down this central valley um they call it the San Joaquin Valley or the Central Valley and it's largely ag land and it's you know very Steinbeck-esque California ag scene and there's this canal that goes kind of from the Sierras that that diverts snow melt down through the valley for irrigating ag land and it was built uh it was probably a new deal project it was built you know, during the depression, maybe, yeah. oh, Wow. no, probably after World War II, probably not during the depression, probably after World War II, I think. It, it was probably not a New Deal project. I think it was after that. But at any rate, Bob worked on it uh, when he was a young man in his 20s, and he made a good living. It was a good job. He worked hard. And he told me a story the other day that blew my mind. It's like, we've got to preserve this story um the long and the short of it is is that he was working assisting or doing something with a crane uh crane operator and the crane operator was lifting a a 40 foot steel i-beam and swung it into himself and either hurt himself (coughs) really like like permanently or died essentially I think he managed to swing a steel I-beam into his own brain while he was on the crane. Wow. And, like, they wanted to get the job going right away, but no one else knew how to operate the crane, and he had just been, like, watching the guy for day after day and was like, you know, why don't you let me try? I think I can do that. Oh, my God. And on the spot, just stepped into the shoes and took over, and that resulted in a promotion that tripled his pay. I mean... It would be like the equivalent of going from um minimum wage now to like a thirty-five dollar an hour job.
0: Because, Department supervisor to RVP. Yeah, I don't know,
1: like, because <laughs> you, you, you just like watched a guy kill himself and said, "Well, I think I can do that without killing myself. Why don't you give me a chance?" Wow. <laughs> so he's got this great story, and he tells it, you know, better than I did, and I'm probably getting a lot of things wrong. So. He's not the kind of guy that's going to sit here and pound beers with us. Probably that would be a sin. But um
0: but he doesn't judge, so he's certainly welcome. He might
1: judge a little bit, but wow, we've go got ahead. we've got to get him to tell that story. And in some ways it'll be frustrating because he can't hear and there'll be times when we're trying to ask him questions for clarification and he'll just keep going cuz he he won't he basically he can he can tell a great story but he can't hear any of the feedback yeah but thank you sir that. um we, anyway my goal for our next recording is to get bob to tell that story it, it might mean that for that particular segment
0: it could be a standalone it could just we're, be that we're
1: just going to do that around my dining table with cups of coffee or something
0: that's a lot easier but it's worth preserving the research level for me is easy on that
1: there's no research required, and he'll and and the thing about Bob is he'll talk for as long as you let him.
0: This is um, this beer we're opening right now is through the Hayes IPA. This is nice. It is oh um, from
1: Bear Republic. In Bear Hillsburg. Republic.
0: Uh, it is juicy, as they say, to describe these oh, beers. Oh yeah, it
1: smells juicy. I'm juicy. Check it out so. in the glass. Yeah, yeah, it's sexy. It looks this is
0: you will like this, dude. So this last segment I have is. <clears throat> Your name is Mudd. Uh, The saying first appeared in Job Babcock's Slang Dictionary in 1823. It refers to someone who is stupid or an idiot. In our time, most people believe that the term came from Samuel A. Mudd, an American physician that was imprisoned for conspiring with John Wilkes Booth in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Mudd worked as a doctor and a tobacco farmer in southern Maryland. He owned slaves, and he believed slavery was a God-given institution. The Civil War... Yeah? (laughs) Well. (laughs) Pretty straightforward there. The Civil War was damaging to his business, especially in 1864 when Maryland abolished slavery. That was the year he met Booth, who was planning to kidnap Lincoln... Mudd was seen with Booth and his three conspirators before the assassination. Wait, but, sorry,
1: can we go back a second? So Maryland, is in the state of Maryland, Yeah. had slaves until after the Civil War?
0: 1864. I never 17. thought
1: of Maryland as a southern state. Am I missing something? I don't think it is. To me, Maryland is definitely north of the mason dixon am i just geography
0: geographical idiot geography is my worst so <laughs> i couldn't tell you I, I just found out where lake county is on, on the map the other day
1: i so like maryland didn't participate in the max emancipation proclamation i i gotta look this up anyway keep keep still on uh, uh
0: so that was the year he met booth who was planning to kidnap lincoln Mudd was seen with Booth and his three conspirators before the assassination, but his part in the events, if any, are unclear. After shooting Lincoln on April 14, 1865, Booth and David Herod went to Mudd's house for surgery on uh, Booth's fractured leg before he crossed into Virginia. Mudd did not report Booth's visit for 24 hours, he was found guilty of aiding and conspiracy, conspiring in a murder, and was sentenced to life imprisonment. He escaped the death penalty by one vote. Mudd was imprisoned with three other conspirators at Fort Jefferson, about 70 miles west of Key West, Florida. Fort Jefferson was, no, was to be known as the Devil's Island, <laughs> And being sent there was considered to be a terrible fate, as it was still under construction. It's crazy. Have you ever seen a picture of it? Yeah. It's like the biggest brick structure in southern United States. it's like the Alcatraz of the Gulf Coast. It's crazy. Prisoners had to face hard labor in the sun, little food, and fresh water was scarce.
1: Mosquitoes were a problem. Yes. Malaria, or maybe, malaria maybe, I don't know.
0: Yes, definitely. While wearing a ball and chain, prisoners worked day and night to build the gigantic brick structure and also suffered from dangerous weather conditions, swarms of mosquitoes, bed bugs, cruel guards, malaria, and yellow fever. There were about 600 prisoners serving time on Devil's Island when Mudd arrived. Most of them were Union Army deserters. He attempted to escape on a transport the thomas a scott he was quickly discovered and put into a ground level gun room known as the dungeon by the guards yeah after three months in the dungeon he was returned to general population but was not allowed to work in the prison prison hospital as further punishment he was assigned to the carpentry shop in the fall of 1867 there was a yellow fever outbreak Mudd agreed to take over when the prison doctor died. He was able to reduce the sp- excuse me the spreading of the disease. He was released to a clerical job, probably af- as a reward after for his help in saving lives. Mudd was pardoned and released from prison on March 8, sixty nine He brought the family farm back to productivity and resumed his medical career. <laughs> And, um, I believe his children are still trying to get, there's a book written by one of his sons trying to get him completely exonerated, but, oh, yeah. uh, so far that's never happened. Crazy. So how do you like Through the Hayes IPA? It's good. I like this beer. It's juicy. Be another good one for next
1: week, 4th yeah. of July. Yeah
0: cool man should we wrap it up that's it that's all i got for this episode me too so we'll see you guys next time cheers motherfuckers cheers